good morning. Good to see each one of you here again today, and it has been a real blessing over the last couple of days, uh, having the opportunity to share the word in chapel and in classes, and to meet the students, those of you who have had the chance to speak to, it's, it's really been a blessing to me and uh, to my son and daughter, having the opportunity to get to know some of you a little bit better, and, and Dr. Bill and others have been so hospitable, it, it really has been a blessing to us, and so I want to just thank the Lord for Uh, what he's done, and thank you for being so welcoming. If you would turn with me to 1 Kings 17 again today, I want to continue looking at Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 17, and we saw Elijah at the brook Cherith, and we're going to pick up in verse 8 to see what the Lord did with Elijah next. 1 Kings 17 and in verse 8. It says, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. And so he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there, gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meat in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. Behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat and then die. And Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. Uh, Just join with me in prayer, if you would, as we continue in the text. Father, we thank you for the day you've given to us, Lord, for the beautiful sunshine, Lord, we thank you for the cold weather as well as we thank you at times for the warm weather. Father, we thank you for uh, the, the fact that for many of us, perhaps all of us, uh, we have no real experience with drought. Uh, Lord, you have sent the seasons. You've allowed us to have a time of plenty and uh, we praise you for all of the things you've done for us. And most of all, for our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we come before you today. It's in uh, praise of your name that we have sung and, and given thanks. And now as we go through your word, we would ask for your help. Lord, I just pray you would meet the need of everyone here today. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is something that those of you, if you've traveled or if you do travel, you'll find that people everywhere are different. But then people everywhere generally are the same. And some stereotypes are deserved, and other stereotypes are based upon more of a a, a myth than any kind of truth. And sometimes you'll go to a place and the difference you'll enjoy, and you'll like it, and other times the differences will be uncomfortable. Uh, The differences that I found, I went to preach for a missionary in Malaga in the south of Spain once, and one difference there I really did not like. Uh, the English are known for, known for being fairly cold and uh, take a little while to warm up to people. Uh, they can be thought to be without really much emotion 
uh, kind of stoic. And they talk about the stiff upper lip. Uh, and then I get to Malaga in Spain, and everyone's just going around doing that greeting with the kiss. That wasn't my thing. <laughs> I couldn't be rude and refuse it and have people kind of lean in for a kiss and just kind of be like, But it wasn't something that I really appreciated. There are some differences like that that, you know, you adjust to. Uh, in Morocco, visiting a missionary there, it's not unusual for just men to walk along hand in hand. It's, it's just something that friends will do. Missionaries I know, though, they said when they come back here, if one of the other missionary men tries to grab their hand, it's just different. And they, you know, they shy away from it. There are differences that we like. There are differences as we go around that we don't like. Some of the differences at Christmas is some of the Christmas carols you sing. There's a tune I know from England, and there's a tune that you sing here. And so sometimes in my brain, I get ready to blast out, you know, a particular tune, and then everyone else is singing differently. And so sometimes differences we like, sometimes we don't. Sometimes they're more noticeable than others. And so sometimes people are very different, but at the heart of it, people are generally the same. Uh, we have the same needs. We have the same physical needs for food and water and for uh, heat and warmth and to be kept cool when it's too hot and to get warmed when it's too cold. Uh, we need, beyond the physical elements, we need to know emotional truths. We need to have emotional needs met. And as Elijah goes through this time in his life, I believe uh, that we see physical provision, but there's also a growth in faith. There's an understanding of emotion and of care and the protection that this widow woman had over her home. And I hope as we go through this, we'll see some lessons that will benefit us. And not far from uh, where I, I grew up, uh, there are a number of, um, well, in Britain, compared to the States, no, as far from anywhere. But not far from where I grew up, there was somewhere called Cheddar Gorge. It was about two or three hours away, and it's called Cheddar Gorge because that's probably where cheddar was invented, at least in the, the modern sense. Um, and there you had, uh, I think uh, it was where Augustus uh, Top Lady wrote, I think that's how you say his name, but he wrote the hymn uh, Rock of Ages. Uh, and then further north, though, there is a town in the Peak District uh, called uh, Buxton, and I think the reason they call it the Peak District is because there are hills and mountains there and that they have peaks. Um, anyone want to guess what they have in the Lake District? <laughs> and in the Peak District, you've got Buxton. And Buxton is famous for its water. And they sell the water from nearby springs. They advertise that the source of their water is rain that fell 5,000 years ago. And, and it's soaked through all the upper layers of soil and sand and sediment. And then it goes through a mile of Derbyshire rock until finally it's purified and infused with minerals. But that purification comes from going through different layers. And each time it goes through a different layer, impurities are removed until the final product is something which is precious and valued highly. Uh, Elijah, we saw a couple of days ago, was poured into a confrontation with Ahab and then poured into a time of waiting at Cherith. And now he's going to be poured into another experience at Zarephath. And every time I believe impurities are being removed and he's being made into something closer to what the Lord would have him to be. Uh, he always, though, had an eye on the horizon to which God was drawing him. Elijah is one of those remarkable figures that we see appear here out of nowhere, it seems like, in 1 Kings 17, and then reappears on the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's mystery around him, uh, even with everything that we do know. 
And so I want to see three things here uh, based upon Zarephath. And the word Zarephath, it means a crucible, a, a smelting place where something was melted and purified. And so taking that, we're going to see uh, three points. First of all, in verses 8 and 9, the crucible of the furnace. And like I said, Zarephath, it means to melt or smelt it in the noun form. It's a crucible. And that is a place, a situation, a trial where different elements interact and it leads to the creation of something new. Uh, we sang in one of the hymns last night uh, over at Maranatha, it, talks, uh, it mentioned the word alloy. Uh, and using it in the context of an old hymn, but talking about the way something is brought together and then something new is the result. And Elijah is being brought into a new situation with a new individual, with a new way that God was going to provide for him and something new would be the result. At Cherith, he uh, was cut down to size. He was cut off from the world. And although we see that can be a difficult process, a, a beautiful truth that the uh, the, the choir sang at the beginning there, holy is he. We often rightly talk about holiness in the sense of God is holy and sinners cannot approach to him. But what that hymn so beautifully brings out and, and what they were singing about is that we can be separated with him in his holiness. And so holiness isn't just something that we think of in terms of separation from him, but separated to him. And he draws us close to himself. And it's really a precious, precious thing. And that has happened here with Elijah. Even in this time of purification and refinement, we're seeing in how firm a foundation. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. And so in this crucible of the furnace... As he has trekked through the desert, as he's still in a time of need, the trial has changed, but the trial has continued. We can see, first of all here, that God knew where Elijah was. God knew where Elijah was. And if you have ever been lost and then found in the real sense, you know what it means to know that somebody knows where you are. Some friends of mine and I had... 20 years ago or so, we're driving through London and we got lost. And one of the men called his father who'd grown up in London because it was before you had Apple Maps or Google Maps or whatever on your phone. And we, we just didn't know where we were. So he called his dad and he said, Dad, I'm driving on this road. There's this building over here. And his dad said, OK, what you need to do, I know where you are. Just keep going down this road. Take this turn. Then you'll find this destination. And he knew where we were, even though we didn't. And so... Elijah could take comfort from knowing that God knew where he was. He knew where he was when he stood before Ahab. He knew where he was when he was waiting at the brook Cherith. And he knew where he was now that he's arrived at the city of Zarephath. God knew where he was. And you know, God knows where you are. You remember when Jesus first met Nathaniel and he tells Nathaniel, I saw you when you were sat under the olive tree. And whatever Nathaniel had been, uh, you know, praying or praising or thinking, something in him said, this is the Son of God. He makes a, an early statement of faith in believing who Jesus Christ was simply because Jesus told him, I know where you were yesterday when you sat under the olive tree. Or when Hagar was fleeing for uh, her life in Genesis 16, she has this understanding and, and she calls God, she names him El Roy, the, the God who sees, the God who sees me. God sees you in your need. 
God sees you in your heart. He sees you in the questions that you have. God sees you in the uncertainties that you face. God knows where you are, just as he knew where Elijah was. Even as Elijah was in the crucible of a furnace, God knew that he was there. He also knew where Elijah was going. God knew where Elijah was. He knew where Elijah was going. He was going to Zarephath. Elijah, as we saw last time, it seems like he was just taking things one step at a time. Elijah, go to Ahab. He goes to Ahab. And he says, Elijah, okay, now go to the brook Cherith. And he goes to the brook Cherith. And he says, okay, now you go to Zarephath. And he went to Zarephath. Take comfort in knowing that God not only knows where you are, but he knows where you are going. When my family and I moved here to the United States, we did not know where we were going. I joked with several people. I felt like Abraham when God said to him, you know, leave. And he left and he went not knowing whence he was going. Uh, That can be a daunting prospect. But you take comfort in the fact that God knows not just where you are, but where you are going. And Elijah's faith here is an example for us. The word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to which belongeth to Zidon, uh, to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Arise, get, dwell. And it says that Elijah went. I love it in Mark 16, where Jesus has uh, the, the, the testimony there of the Great Commission, and he's told some, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And a few verses later, it says, and they went. He said, go, and they went. And they went not knowing exactly what was going to happen next. We, maybe because of technology or prosperity, can have a much better idea of where we're going many times. And so sometimes those steps of faith are are removed from us. But Elijah didn't have that. And and so often as you have faced and will face, you're going to have to rest in the fact that even if you don't know where you are, God does. If you don't know where you're going, God does. He was going to go to Zarephath. Now Cherith, the brook, was east of Jordan as much as, as it can be ascertained. It was south of the Sea of Galilee. Zarephath was in between Tyre and Sidon and the Mediterranean Sea, some 100 miles away. And so Elijah was going to have to travel through open ground and enemy territory. So not only did God know where he was and where he was going, but God knew how he was going to get him there. And that is something which, again, we take comfort from. God knew to whom Elijah would be sent. Again, a time of of humbling for Elijah. Here, the mighty prophet is not going to provide for the widow. The widow was going to provide for him. This widow of Jezreel, this was the homeland of Jezebel. And yet even when in the heart of enemy territory, God was taking Elijah to someone who would help him. Look for those people in your life. Look for those people in the places you go who are close to the Lord. And sometimes it's going to be those unexpected saints who are just going to be so precious to you because their love for the Lord just shines. There's a lady in our church, which probably most of the church don't even know her name. Because of her work schedule, her life situation, she normally turns up, you know, 10, 15 minutes after the service has started. So she doesn't get to hang around with everybody before the service. And she is fairly elderly. She's hunched over. And so she's easy just to kind of look over. You, you just don't see her the way you notice other people. But she witnesses so faithfully. And she cares for other people. She has so little. You know, our church at times has filled her oil tank so that she and her husband can have heating during the winter. And she's always looking for ways that she can be a blessing to someone else. 
And though many people are never going to know her name, God knows. And God, I believe, is going to bless her one day. Look for those people where you serve, where you will serve. Elijah here in the furnace, in the crucible of the furnace, who could take comfort in the fact that God knew where he was, where he was going, and to whom he would be sent. The fiery trials that the Lord takes us to and through will purify. They're for a purpose. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4 verse 12 to, to, to not be surprised by those fiery trials that come into our lives. James talks about the profit that they have to us, that they are used of the Lord to uh, increase our faith. And you think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When do you think their faith was stronger, before the furnace or after it? Now, it had to be strong to begin with. It had to be strong to stand when everyone else was bowing down. It had to be strong even when given the opportunity to run away and change their minds to stand. But do you think they ever stopped talking about that fiery furnace to anyone? Do you think that was ever a story that they got bored of telling? Now, maybe people around them got bored of hearing it. I hope they wouldn't do. You know, again, and, and there's something that may, I don't know why, but it really stands out to me. We, we've got to respect our elders. We've got to glean from them and learn from them. And even if you heard their story a thousand times before, praise God with them in it again. They're telling it for a reason. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whenever they would stand up and say, did I ever tell you about the time I was thrown into a fiery furnace? Yes, Shadrach. But there's a lesson to be learned. There's something to be taken from it. We need to keep our eyes on God through the difficult times. Sometimes we can get into survival mode and just get used to scraping by. Uh, have you ever driven somewhere? When I used to drive a great deal and I would get back to South Carolina, I don't know what the church was, I don't know the name of it, but I remember going along a certain road and I'd look up and see that church off to the side and then about 15 minutes later I'd pull into the driveway at home and I just don't remember the road between the two. And just the exhaustion of having gotten to that point. You get to a survival mode. You're just scraping by. You're just kind of going through the motions. Deliberately look to God. See Him. Focus upon Him. In that crucible of the furnace, when the trial hasn't ended, but it just seems like the circumstances have changed, look to the Lord. We go into verses 10 and 11. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. He called to her and he said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thy hand. Here we uh, think beyond the crucible of the furnace to the crucible of first impressions. Elijah was told to go and he went. He arrives tired, hungry and thirsty and maybe hoping for some immediate relief. And what he finds is someone who seems to be in perhaps a worse situation than he is. The first thing here I want you to take note of is there was this hope for relief from a trial. He arrived in the city. He found the widow at the city. Uh, sometimes you'll find your destination easy, sometimes not. When we first arrived here Tuesday, it was a little bit darker because I decided to uh, run into someone on the way here. So we were a little bit delayed. And then... It was dark, so I was kind of driving around a little bit, trying to figure out exactly where to go. And, you know, it wasn't all that long. After a few minutes, we, we figured our, our way out. Uh, but Elijah gets there, and he thinks maybe there's going to be relief from the trial. The plain water, the food brought by the ravens, 
Well, that was past. Maybe he's thinking now it's going to be home-cooked meals and everything is going to be fine. But the Lord hadn't told him, I'm not taking the trial away. I'm just changing the surroundings. He had some relief from one trial. The uncertainty maybe of the ravens bringing food every day, the brook drying up. There was a little bit of uncertainty there. And maybe there was a moment when he thought everything's going to be okay. And speaking with some of the young men this morning in the class, uh, I want to extend the warning that we need to guard our hearts, not just in the trial, but after the trial as well. Uh, And sometimes it's not in the time of difficulty that you take your eyes off of God, but when the Lord has brought the solution that you begin to shift your focus. You know, Peter, he walked on water and his problems began when he took his eyes off the Lord and then he began to sink. When was it that Elijah's greatest time of difficulty came? Not when he was standing in front of hundreds of these wicked prophets of Baal with their knives and their chanting and their dancing and everything they were doing, but when he heard a rumor that somebody was seeking his life. And after his greatest victory became his greatest uh, kind of descent into depression and discouragement and just looking for the Lord to take his life. Elijah had here in this first impression, perhaps a moment of relief. But then soon after he realizes he's returning to the trial, he says to her, bring thy pray thee a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, as the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Could you imagine being in that position, knowing that you're preparing the last meal, and after that, you believe you and your family are just going to starve to death. This is where this lady was. This is where Elijah finds her. And this crucible of the first impression of when life turns out in a way that we don't expect, Elijah had to make a decision of whether he would continue to trust, and we find that he does. But we find also as he returns to the trial that in his faith and even maybe in his desperation, he's still gentle with her. He responds in verse 13, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. But thus saith the Lord God of Israel. We're back to that title, the Lord God of Israel. He says to her, provide something for me, and God has promised He will provide for you. And that provision is never going to run out. In the trial, by the grace of God, he had the the ability not just to do what he needed to do, but to lead in a gentle way, to lead with kindness, to lead in a way that was befitting of someone who was speaking for God. One of, I think, the least emphasized attributes of the Holy Spirit, or maybe it's because the attribute is the one that's God working on me with, is gentleness. Do you ever find gentleness emphasized? Uh, And maybe it's just something I've missed. Maybe I've just never really noticed it before. But how often does it talk about the fact that the pastor must not be a brawler or a striker, but he must be apt to teach. We're to be gentle. Now there is a gentleness that you'll find in showing some strength But there needs to be a gentleness that is there. And I believe Elijah has that. Gentleness is not weakness. Patience is not weakness. Compassion is not weakness. Elijah here was gentle in his leadership with this widow woman. 
And although he's not finding relief from the trial that he had hoped, and there is simply a return to the trial under different circumstances, he continues to believe. He continues to show the attributes that God would have him uh, to show. And within it, we see him continuing to rest. He didn't panic. He didn't despair on this occasion. He trusted Sometimes the trials will be like Elijah's. He goes from facing Ahab. He goes to Cherith and then he goes to Zarephath and it's just like one trial after another. There was a time in my life when the trials just compounded and they went to such a degree that it seemed like whenever I went somewhere else, somewhere else, I took my trials with me. And a group of my friends, they started a Facebook group. I know Martin Wickens and I have the bruises to prove it. And people started going on and saying, yeah, Martin was at my house and there was a water leak and the roof collapsed. Yeah, Martin drove past my house and the gas broke down and the heating went out. And so everyone's saying it's not only just him, but everywhere he goes, there's trouble. We were living in a house in Sunderland. And for weeks, my wife had been saying, I think I smell a gas leak. And I, I said, no, it's, it's, it's your imagination. It wasn't. We, we went away for a couple of days, came back and walked into the home fairly late in the evening and the smell of, of gas was just overwhelming. And so we, we opened all the doors and windows and uh, we, we called the, the gas company and they sent somebody out and he did some tests and, and I figured it was going to be nothing. Um, so we were starting to put the kids to bed and he came to me and he said, there's something I'm going to have to call my supervisor. And he's in the other room calling his supervisor. His supervisor's not happy because it's Sunday night and he's at home. And I can hear him shouting at his employee over the phone, why are you calling me? It's not going to be anything. It's a false alarm. But he'd called him, so he had to come out. The supervisor arrived and he ran the same tests and he said, yeah, there's a gas leak. And so... Um, we ended up being evacuated from our home. Over the next week or so, they dug holes in the ground. They dug trenches all around the house trying to find this gas leak. In the end, it could have been something that would have blown up the entire street. I mean, this was life-ending potential disaster. So that was kind of a bad evening. So <laughs> they... And I have to say, whenever my wife now says, do you smell? I'm like, no, but if you do, I believe you. So we... We're evacuated to a hotel. We got to the hotel. The kids were just getting over having chicken pox. And my daughter at the time, my, my uh, second daughter, third child, um, she, she'd gone just really limp. She had a fever. And so uh, I took her to an emergency uh, doctor's. And I went in and he looked at her and he said, look, we, we can't prescribe medicine for her because she's, she's too young for what we deal with here. Uh, but you need to take her to an emergency room. Um, he was very kind. He said, look, uh, I can't give you any medicine. If I was going to, I'd give you this amount of medicine. And um, it's that one on my desk. Now I'm going to go out and do some paperwork. He went out and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so, so I took her to the emergency room and they checked up on her. And initially they said, well, it's probably just a fever, and they left it, and then they came back out, and the doctor said, I'm calling the, the pediatric specialist, and I think he, she needs to be looked at. Well, then as a dad, I'm panicking. And then they checked her again and did tests, and they said, okay, what it is is the chickenpox virus. It's made her its way into her brain, and I'm just like, what? And they say it's normal, this happens. I'm like, I think doctors sometimes say that. Like, I've never heard of that, and I've never heard of it since. And they said, she'll be fine. She just has to go through it and she'll be okay. 
And so, uh, you know, I started going back to the hotel and I'm thinking, how do I tell my wife, if you start out with, it's okay, but that's a problem. If you start out with, she's got a virus in her brain, but there's no good way to have that conversation. And so, you know, I get home, I tell her, and so now we're in a hotel room because we're evacuated from our house. The, uh, our youngest daughter has this complication with chickenpox, and she's not doing well. And then the next morning, uh, one of the, uh, I was overseeing two different uh, facilities at the time, two different churches, and the maintenance guy from one called, and he said, I'm having to call in uh, the, the gas company because the furnace has gone down, and I think it's leaking. And I was like, ha, ha, very funny. We're evacuated from our house. He's like, no, really. And then the guy who was helping run the other facility called me, and he said, the heating's gone out. Uh, what do we do? And I'm like, are you for real? So then I take my wife and kids and I drive them over to a friend's house about an hour and a half away and so they can stay with friends rather than a hotel room. I drop them off and go straight back. It's on the way home. He calls me and he said, hey, everything's fine, but we just had a water leak and our ceiling collapsed. (laughs) And so he said, can you not come back until you figured out whatever the Lord's doing in your life? (laughs) So, and he didn't mean it, but... And it's like trial after trial is happening. And one thing after another. And that's just a snapshot of a two-year period where it just seemed like if it was going to go wrong, it was going to go wrong. And there would be a moment when I'd think, I'm going to get relief from the trial, but the trial would just change. And it would be a return to the trial. And what God was teaching me and he has to continue reminding me is that even within those moments of heartache and uncertainty and anxiety you can know the peace of God not because there's peace around you but you have the prince of peace within you rest isn't because there's nothing bad going on rest is because of who you know because you know Jesus Christ because you know God And it's not that you just have rest and peace with God, but the rest and the peace of God. My pastor would always describe this competition where somebody was wanted the the depiction of peace painted. And so people had all these beautiful scenes of valleys and, and of green fields and blue skies. But the competition winner was this painting of a storm at sea and there's dark clouds and lightning in the distance. And there's a cliff face. And in that cliff face, there is this bird sitting and just nestling and taking care of the the baby birds that were with her. And that, he said, is peace. Peace within the storm. Elijah had been in this crucible of uh, the furnace where he's being purified. He's in the crucible of first impressions when things aren't going the way that he believed they would And then the final element of this I want to draw your attention to is the potential for the crucible of fear. What do we do when all seems lost and fear takes hold? Elijah said unto her, fear not. She was afraid. She thought she and her children were going to die. There's a fear that you will know as, as, as young people. There's fears that maybe you have gone through. There's a whole other level of fear when it's not just you, but it's your kids. There's a whole other fear when it's not just you, but it's your spouse. And those of you who are kind of in the next stage of me, I've heard you say there's a fear for your grandchildren. 
Fear is, is something which is natural. Fear can be a healthy thing in some instances. I was doing outreach with my pastor in, in Bible college, and we were kind of leapfrogging, going from house to house, and we got to a house that should be his, and he said, why don't you do that one? And I said, well, it's yours, respectfully. And, and so he says, no, no, you do that one. I'll do the next one. I looked, and there was a warning sign, beware of the dog. And he, I don't know if it was before or after that, but in England, you can put leaflets through the letterbox actually into the house. And so he'd had part of the tip of one of his fingers bitten off by a dog because he put the leaflet through and he met a dog on the other side. And so he was like, you do this one. And I looked and I'm like, I don't know, pastor, that looks like a Christian house. And he says, yeah, I think that looks like a Christian house. (laughs) And so if you think well of me, then believe that I went in there boldly and presented the gospel. If you know me, then you'll know that God had other means of getting the gospel to that person. But, <laughs> but we had been to that area before. We were doing regular outreach. Those people weren't overlooked. But there'll be times when you're afraid, and that fear doesn't go away. Boldness and courage isn't about the absence of fear. It's about doing what's right anyway and trust in God. The fear may remain, even though you say, Lord, I believe, and you press on and you take courage. This widow woman saw a few sticks, a handful of flour, and a little oil, but what did Elijah see? He saw the limitless provision of God. A little while down the road, Elijah's servant or Elisha's servant would see the enemy army encamped around them at Dothan, but what the prophet saw was the army of God with fiery chariots and swords of fire. Take courage. When the choice is there between fear and faith, you can choose faith. And this widow woman will be spoken of by Jesus later on over in, I think it's Luke chapter 4. Numerous times we read in the Bible, fear not. I love it in Luke chapter 8 verse 50 when Jesus tells Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, fear not, believe only. It's amazing how simple step of faith is just life-changing. It was mentioned previously, I think it was in one of the testimonies, how that uh, when uh, the, uh, Mary brought the oil before the Lord and anointed him, the apostles rebuked her and said, that's a waste. And he said, and in my mind, I don't know if he stepped in between them, but he said, you know, let her be. Her faith is going to be spoken of. And this is the, the, the beautiful thing with it. He said, she has done what she could. Isn't that great? You may have someone sat around you and they can play instruments and they can preach and sing and they can, they, they're good at math and they can comb their hair and they can do all kinds of things. And you say, I can't do any of that. But God doesn't expect you to do what others do. Do what you can. She had done what she could. This widow woman had a couple of sticks, a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. She made that available to the prophet. She made it available to the Lord. And God blessed her for it. In the crucible, choices were made. The crucible of the furnace. Is God purifying you? Taking you through layers of trial and it just doesn't seem to be letting up? God has got a purpose in mind at the end. Keep looking to him. The crucible of first impressions, maybe something even today has just blindsided you and and things aren't what you expected them to be. Trust. Believe, continue to obey. Maybe in the crucible of fear, you're having to make a choice between believing. Choose faith. 
Whenever you begin to doubt, again, find some of those gray-haired old saints and ask them, tell me about a time the Lord has provided for you. Be encouraged by it because God doesn't have favorites. What he's done for them, he'll do for you. The crucible, Zarephath, is a time when different elements were brought together and something new was brought from it. And it wasn't easy, but it was necessary. I'm going to ask you if you would just uh, bow your head, close your eyes. I'm going to turn the, the, uh, the service back over to Dr. Bill. And, and if you would just close it as you see fit, however the Lord is dealing with you. And I know Tuesday and today, it's been very similar themes in the message. But would you respond to him in obedience and faith and trust him? Because he is holy and he wants to separate you with him in that holiness. He is worth it. Let's praise the Lord. And uh, Dr. Bill, thank you.